a gift of music from our sunshine singers. Shout for me, rocks keep silent. Ain't no rock and shout for me. 
May we affirm our faith with joy and a willing spirit as we hear today's scripture. Our first reading is from Luke, chapter 19, verses 29 through 32, and 35 through 40. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. Then they brought it to Jesus and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had, been, they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Our second reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also ex highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word to God's people. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God.
Throughout Lent, we've been uh, spending some time looking at what it might be that disciples are supposed to be about. I've been talking about core principles of discipleship, uh, suggesting to you that when we think back upon what Jesus said was the greatest commandment, and the second is likened unto it, of loving God and loving neighbor, that, that in those passages we have the, what is essential for us in our actions as disciples of Christ. So we've been looking at that, and we've been, we've been thinking about how, well, that would break down these works of piety, of loving God, that would break down into acts of personal devotion and acts of public worship. And, and we've been thinking about how the love of neighbor, these acts of mercy, would, would maybe be broken out into individual acts of compassion that we would do with one another, and collective acts of compassion that would be acts of social justice. All the time insisting that this is the way by which we experience the grace of God in our life and this is the way by which we then communicate that grace of God to other people. So today I, I wanted to look a little bit more at belief rather than behavior. Though these central beliefs that I'm going to talk about today, these central beliefs of our faith, have consequences in how we live our lives and how we behave. And again, this comes from Wesley. He was a fairly reputed theologian in his time, yet when asked about what was uh, important in our belief system, when he was challenged to try to identify what was uh, essential for us as Christians, um, he said, it's very simple, it's very obvious, it's very clear. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Savior. Now, if I did this series a little differently, I would have started off with those two being the first two core principles of discipleship because these are the beliefs that we embrace once we have been touched by the Spirit and find our lives transformed, we kind of ask ourselves, well, how did that happen? What, what has gone on inside of me? How has my soul been, been warmed and transformed? And, and how is it I am experiencing this renewal of new life? And we would think, well, that's because you're giving yourself over to Christ Jesus. And Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Savior, and, and that's why that's happening to you. And then we would have said to ourselves, well, then so what? What should I do about this? Is there some consequence to this belief? And we would have said, yeah, there's some core principles that I'd like to suggest you follow, and that's that you love God back and you love your neighbor. So I've kind of reversed the order as I've gone through here because Jesus' Lord works pretty well for Palm Sunday, and Jesus' Savior will work for Easter but I really should have started with these beliefs because I think our behaviors are driven forward by what it is we believe. Are you with me with that? Do you see that in your life of discipleship? That your behaviors, your attitudes, your words... come out of what it is that you believe? 
Jesus is heralded as the one who comes in the name of the Lord on this day, this, this Palm Sunday day. He parades into Jerusalem. Instead of on the back of a war horse, he parades in on the back of a donkey. He is taunting may be too strong of a word. He's mocking may be too strong of a word. He's drawing attention, let's say. Let's say he's drawing attention to the contrast between things that he's said and the ways that he behaves and the way the emperor behaves, the way the empire is run. He's challenging Rome with a countercultural statement of personal humility. with the valuing, the respecting, the including of the marginalized of that culture in his heart with his love. With the idea that we should submit to God as God, not Caesar as God. Well, you all know the story. got him in some hot water, didn't it? Rome noticed, Rome heard the message, Rome decided to respond and dispose of this Jesus, this itinerant rabbi, this Passover rabble-rouser, this annoying prophet. And I imagine, in light of today's celebration, this must have been a somewhat disappointing upcoming week for the disciples, so quickly going from the highlight of today to the souring, disappointing, discouraging, and, well, radically depressing events of this week. When I think of the disciples today, I think that they probably felt that they were on the verge of something really big. Now, if they were zealots, some of them that were zealots, they were thinking, all right, here we go. We're going to overthrow Roman hegemony in our homeland, and it will be ours again. And the few of them that were more like the Essenes rather than the zealots, they would have gone, all right, we're storming the temple. We're going to get the temple back, and we're going to purify it. We're going to change that power structure to the good. And the rest of them, maybe just the regular kind of folk that were following Jesus, they were probably just thinking, well, we're going to risk pushing ourselves forward a little bit more and bring a little bit more attention to Jesus and his message. See if we can spread the influence a little bit more. Any of those would have made for a really heady day today. Modern theologians, and I'm thinking on my bookshelf, I'm thinking of Raymond Brown and Marcus Borg and N.T. Wright and John Dominic Croson. They like to speak about the, the pre-Easter Jesus and the post-Easter Christ. Taking note of the tremendous change in the understanding of this Nazarene 
from before to after the resurrection of who Jesus was and, and what Jesus was doing. Before Easter, Jesus was perceived as the herald of God's kingdom, the presenter of a, a new set of values that would go along with that kingdom in contrast to the ones that the folks were living under. That was the pre-Easter Jesus. But then, after Easter, well, he was seen as the Christ, the Lord of this kingdom that he was announcing. From before time to after time, the one who had thrown open the gates of this kingdom to all who would want to come in, all who would repent and turn towards it. And that's the Jesus that we meet. That's the, the person that we encounter as we seek and explore and decide and grow in our faith. We come up against this post-Easter Christ. We meet Him after the resurrection, affecting our sense of being and offering to us the possibility of totally new life. And we have that experience, and we, we shuffle it around inside and think about it a bit, and we come to the place where we say, thank you, Jesus. You are my Lord. So when we say that, what are we saying? What are we meaning? If, if, if we're going to say Jesus is our Lord, like what's up with that? I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking that, well, this means that we're going to honor Jesus, we're going to glorify Jesus, we're going to do those kind of praisey kind of things. I think it means that we're going to give Him our allegiance. That's something you do to a Lord, Right? I'm thinking that it means that we're going to make a point of learning from Him and, and offering ourselves up to be reshaped by His influence. I think if we say that Jesus is Lord, we're saying that we're going to emulate Him as best as we can. We're going to try to follow in His footsteps. I think we mean that we are going to obey Him in that old-fashioned word. Is that too harsh of a word nowadays to say, that you actually are going to obey somebody? I think that's what we mean when we say Jesus Christ is our Lord. I think we mean that we're going to heed Him, honor, worship, align ourselves with, get under the influence of, heed Him. And so I want to ask you today to think with me just a bit about whether that should make any difference in your life. What do you think? I kind of think it should. Are you with me? I think maybe it should. I think it ought to make a difference. There ought to be a consequence to saying that Jesus is your Lord. It ought to somehow show in your living that Jesus is your Lord. 
I think we probably should be doing things differently if we're saying Jesus is Lord than the average bear. <laughs> I would submit that we're saying that we want to think the way Jesus thinks. We seek to have his thoughts. We th- seek to have his attitudes. We seek to act like him. Would you say that? I'm thinking that we want more and more to have our thoughts, our words, our attitudes, our actions be like Jesus's. And that's what we're saying when we say Jesus is our Lord. We're kind of committing ourselves to that program. And I would suggest also that we are now putting ourselves in a position as we say yes to Jesus to say no, perhaps to some other things. I'd want to suggest that There might be other competing or attractive or potential allegiances in your life that you might need to tamp down or to say no to if you say Jesus is your Lord. I'm thinking that when God speaks with the prophets and talks about setting a plumb line in society, that in our New Testament understanding of that, God is providing us Christ Jesus, and Christ Jesus is our plumb line, hangs straight in our midst, and we're able to judge the rightness or the wrongness of things in terms of that plumb line, what is just and what is unjust, what is loving and what is unloving. We line it up against Jesus, against the plumb line of Jesus. I might even suggest that we would say Jesus is our north star, that that thing that guides us back to our home, back to the garden. I'm thinking perhaps we would say some things change because we say Jesus is our Lord. I'm thinking perhaps our relationships change a bit. I'm thinking perhaps we don't just uh, act crummy towards one another. Use one another, abuse one another, take advantage of one another. I'm guessing that those would be qualities that we would not be pursuing if we were to say Jesus is our Lord. I think our relationships become more respectful. They, they become more caring and compassionate. We welcome perhaps unjudgingly people into our heart and we share our love more unconditionally with one another because that seems to be how Jesus did love. I think we seek God's sustenance and God's empowerment in our relationships. We pray for that. We go after that. 
for it to affect our ways of caring, of relating. Asking God to challenge us to be our better selves as often as we can. I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say I think our work changes when we say Jesus is Lord. We look to have a a work that is purposeful and meaningful, not just something that bides our time and gets us bucks so that we can play. I'm thinking our vocation, our vocation gives expression to the creative spirit of God that is within us, with the skill sets that we have been graced with, and that we see ourselves in a small way or in a major way partnering with God to help to build a new creation, to do something of value that makes the world just a little bit better. I'm thinking you intentionally are about this kind of business with your life if you think Jesus is your Lord. You realize there's a partnership going on. I think even, and let me go out on a limb here, I think even we would say our social discourse is different when we say Jesus is Lord. We see the ordering of our society, the way we relate to one another, infringe or assist one another in the light of God's purposes, those purposes that have been unfolding through the centuries from God and now are a part of our lives for us to pick up and make of worth or not to use and let wallow. It strikes me that God wants the darkness pushed back by the light. Am I right? And I think God expects God's people to do that pushing. Who's going to be pushing for the light if it's not God's people? I think God intends for His children to thrive in peace and in justice. And all of our political machinations, all of that stuff, is supposed to enhance these purposes of God. We want to seek to be on God's side of what's going down. The issues before us. So Philippians passage is really a great passage because you get a glimpse there if, I don't know if you could hear it in the English translation, it probably sounds more lyrical in the the Greek. But you've got there one of the earliest hymns of 
the Jesus movement of the early church in Philippians. After, uh, after it goes, who, and then it says things, about a verse or so in, take a look at that later today, and, and you'll, you'll see it perhaps a little bit more pronounced than, than you thought this morning. And you, what you'll see is that it is heralding the lordship of Christ over all of us, over the world, over the cosmos. And I think, I think a disciple of Christ gets this. Looks at Philippians and gets it and goes, yeah, aha. Uh-huh. And seeks to orient our life then accordingly to our affirmation about the grandeur of Christ as Lord. We give our allegiance over to Christ Jesus as our Lord and we choose to follow him in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. This is a a core principle of being a disciple of Christ. So I invite you this morning to claim that, to claim it as your own, to, to take it deep within, to let it guide you in your becoming your better selves. Amen.